Those are wonderful words, precious words. Uh, so um, encouraging to remember the faithfulness of God and His mercies, which are new every morning, His steadfast love, which never ceases. The words, of course, inspiring that hymn come from the book of Lamentations, and they are embedded in chapter 3 of Lamentations, um, and that is a book full of sorrow, Jeremiah's Holy Spirit-inspired sorrow at the fall of Jerusalem and the judgment that is, that is falling on, on God's people. And yet in the midst of it, his steadfast hope, like an anchor to his soul, is that the faithfulness of God is the same day after day after day. And the mercies of God, the steadfast love of God is new every morning. Um, it never wears out. And that is our confidence. Precious words. Let's turn now to Daniel chapter 12. Daniel chapter 12, we'll read verses 1 through 13, the whole chapter. Brothers and sisters, this is the living and abiding word of God. So let's give it all our attention now. At that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince, who stands watch over the sons of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. And at that time, your people shall be delivered, every one who is found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Then I, Daniel, looked, and there stood two others, one on this riverbank, and the other on that riverbank. And one said to the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, How long shall the fulfillment of these wonders be? And I heard the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, when he held up his right hand and his left hand to heaven, and swore by him who lives forever, that it shall be for a time, times, and half a time. And when the power of the holy people has been completely shattered, all these things shall be finished. Although I heard, I did not understand. And he said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. Many shall be purified, made white, and refined, but the wicked shall do wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall, uh, shall understand. I said, My Lord, what shall be the end of these things? And from the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away, and the abomination of desolation is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and comes to the 1,335 days. But you go your way to the end, for you shall rest and will arise to your inheritance at the end of the days. Our New Testament text, Matthew 24, first 14 verses. Matthew 24, verses 1 through 14. 
Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple. And his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be various, there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations. And then the end will come. Amen. Thanks be to God for his holy word. Let's pray and ask him to bless it to our hearts, brothers and sisters. O our God and Father, we cry out to you for wisdom, insight, and understanding into your holy word. We ask for teachable hearts, hearts that are in your hand, that you turn where you will, that you you would mold us and shape us, convict and correct us and strengthen us, and work faith in our hearts. Faith to see our Lord Jesus Christ in all his sufficiency for us. Faith to take your word to heart and walk in repentance and faith and new obedience. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. On my route to school growing up, it's about a 20-minute drive. Uh, we go through some nice country farmland, and there was, along the route, uh, one house, which I think at one point had been a nice farmhouse, pleasantly situated on a little hill overlooking acres of grassy field, a uh, nice white farmhouse with columned porch and uh, dormers on it. But it had fallen into disrepair. It had been empty for as long as I knew, driving past it. Um, But then one day, uh, driving past, there was an excavator parked outside. And I knew what that meant. The little house didn't have much longer to go. Um, And then the excavator sat there parked outside maybe a few weeks. It seemed like I kept driving past and There's the excavator, the house unchanged. Uh, But then after a little while... One time on the drive home, the house was leveled. It was done. It was gone. Um, As Jesus leaves the temple in Matthew 24, verse 1, it's like the excavator pulling up to the house outside. And that that little anecdote I just shared. Uh, But but Jesus seems to be the only one who notices this and sees this, who, who knows what time it is in history and what that means 
for the temple. Uh, Jesus and his disciples leave the temple. They, they're going out of the city. But as they go out, the disciples are staring at the buildings of the temple. And they're in awe. They're, 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 they're just amazed at the architecture and the beauty of these buildings. Uh, Mark's account says, they say to Jesus, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones. What wonderful buildings. Um, you probably would have been saying the same thing. It was an impressive structure. Um, it was uh, the temple itself, wide area of buildings, outer wall around it, all of it making up the temple mount. Um, it was some, uh, the, the square footage of the whole temple mount area was something like 1.5 million square feet. Uh, so it's, it's a big area. Uh, and, and this foundation of the temple mount, it has these huge foundation stones. Uh, I looked it up. Some of them, the largest that has been found is 45 feet long. One foundation stone, 11.5 feet high, 12 feet thick. Temple itself, 172 feet tall, 16 to 20 stories. Um, White marble, covered with sheets of gold. Josephus, the ancient church historian, said that, um, he said he said this, being covered on all sides with massive plates of gold, the sun was no sooner up than it radiated so fiery a flash that persons straining to look at it were compelled to avert their eyes as from the solar rays. To approaching strangers it appeared from a distance like a snow-clad mountain, for all that was not overlaid with gold was purest white. It's quite a building, quite a place to see. So they say to Jesus, look, even as they leave. But their question to Jesus, their words to Jesus, show a fundamental misunderstanding for them. They see the temple. What do they see? They see glory. They see, they see wonder. They see, they see something impressive and, 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 and lasting. For Jesus, though, the glory is gone. It's an empty house. Windows boarded up, grounds overgrown, roofs sagging in, paint peeling. Um, excavator parked outside. Because of the unbelief of the people. Because of their rebellion against him. Jesus has just been in the temple now for, for quite some time, all of chapter 23, uh, which we looked at, debating with the religious leaders, uncovering their hypocrisy. And finally, he ends, uh, ends and, and leaves at the end of chapter 23. He says this to them, Your house is left to you desolate. Your house, this beautiful temple, is empty. It's a God-forsaken place. And he leaves. And as he goes... God is leaving the temple, isn't, isn't he? Because our Lord Jesus Christ himself, the covenant Lord, has come to his people. But they have rejected him. And so Jesus says, he leaves, he leaves the temple and, and it's, it is going to be destroyed. Jesus says to his disciples in verse 2, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Brothers and sisters, Jesus wants his disciples to understand and know what time it is in history, what, what time it is in their present day, that in, in, in the purposes of God and in the plan of God. And in light of knowing what time it is in God's plan and purpose, to know how to live well given what time it is. That it's not time to be admiring the temple anymore, but now it's time to get ready for the end of the ages for the destruction of the temple, and to know how to live in the light of these things. 
And, and that is the substance of what Jesus is going to say now for chapter 24 and then chapter 25. This is uh, the fifth and final major discourse in Matthew's Gospel. Remember, there are five of them in all of Matthew's Gospel. And, and here, these two chapters are, are Jesus' last sermon, if you will, his last lesson with his disciples in Matthew's Gospel. Um, they're, they're not easy chapters, 24 and 25. They're some of the most debated in the Bible, some of the most uh, difficult and challenging in some ways, in some ways, to understand. Uh, and we'll look at some of that as we go. But the main thing in them is clear to understand. And that is, know what time it is, and know how to live as a disciple of Christ in light of what time it is. Jesus' words to his disciples in chapter 24 are just as urgent for us as they were for them. Um, he gives us three clear, direct, distinct commands in these verses. And, and these commands are going to, to structure the sermon for us. Um, but before we get into those three commands, I need to spend a little time uh, just working out some introductory stuff for these chapters. Uh, there's, there, there are three main approaches to how these uh, chapters are understood. Um, some people look at these chapters and say that Jesus is primarily talking about A.D. 70, when the Romans come, set siege to Jerusalem, and destroy the temple. And that what Jesus is talking about in chapter 24 and 25 is, the, the, is that, that historical event that's already happened um, for us, from our perspective, already, already happened. Uh, something that was uh, a judgment greater than, than even the judgment of Babylon's bringing Israel into exile. Uh, the Roman uh, siege of Jerusalem. And in many ways, what Jesus is saying does refer to those things. It shows up, um, uh, uh, you can see it throughout, and, and in Jesus' words in verse 34, when he says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Well, if all these things means destruction of the temple in AD 70, that makes good sense of what he's saying. But you, I don't think you can look at the text and say that everything here is about the destruction of the temple. Because, for instance, verse 30, what Jesus says there, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. It goes on to talk about how he's going to gather all his elect from all over the earth. Uh, that, that language might have a lot of supercharged prophetic imagery in it, uh, but, but it is the language that, that very much is talking about Christ's glorious final return on the day of judgment. Remember how he says to his disciples when he ascends, he says, uh, or the angels say to him, you'll, you'll see him come in the same way he went, uh, coming on the clouds of heaven. This is more than what happened in AD 70. So, chapter 24, 25, has some that is fulfilled in AD 70, but it's not all talking about that. There's more. Some people say, though, uh, that um, what Jesus is describing really has nothing to do with AD 70. It's, it's, it's future stuff. Uh, we're still waiting for this stuff to happen. Um, but that is to ignore Jesus answering their question. Right? Their question is, um, what will it be like when the temple is destroyed? When is this going to happen? That's the question Jesus is answering. And so what we have to say is, well, then chapters 24 and 25 are not just... AD 70, and not just the very last day of history, but both at the same time and the whole period in between. 
that what Jesus is doing is he's weaving together two things. He's got something in the foreground, something in the background. Destruction of Jerusalem coming soon, and then in the background, the end of the ages. And he sees both of these things as linked together. As Jesus uh, gives these words then to his disciples, what he's saying is, the end of the ages is beginning as the temple will soon be destroyed, but it's going to be a process that continues until I return in, in final judgment. What this means, brothers and sisters, is that the words that Christ speaks to his disciples here have just as much to say to us as they did to them, that they're just as urgent for us. He gives three commands. Let's dive in now. Three commands that Jesus gives his disciples that he gives us in these verses. First command is do not be deceived, verses 3 through 5. Jesus is on the Mount of Olives looking uh, down across the Kidron Valley and across there is Jerusalem on the other side and the disciples come and ask about, about what signs will accompany the day of judgment. And Jesus says in, in verses 4 through 5, he says, take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And we, we, this is a prophecy that there will be false Christs coming. And in the years leading up to AD 70, you, you see that. You see people coming, claiming to be saviors for Israel. Um, one amasses a bunch of rebels on a mountain, but then Pontius Pilate wipes them out. Uh, one comes to the gates of Jerusalem and says he's going to command the walls to fall down. It doesn't happen. Um, these false Christs arising and, and, and claiming to be the Savior um, up in the days leading up to A.D. 70. And Jesus is saying to his disciples, as you hear those claims, don't listen to them. Don't be deceived by them. Don't be led astray. Don't be led off the path. The word deceived here means to be, to be moved off the correct path, onto the wrong path. Don't listen to anyone who tells you that there's another Savior, another Christ, or another way. Brothers and sisters, our Lord Jesus is not only warning them of these things, he's also warning us of these things, to know that there will be false saviors and people who point you away from the true Christ to a false Christ and from the true gospel to a false gospel. We may not see a lot of people around us claiming to be Christ. But nevertheless, we see people pointing us to a different kind of Christ, to holding up Christ and saying, well, that's not what he's about. This is what he's about. You need a Christ who's about social change. You need a Christ who's about uh, uh, freeing the oppressed classes. You need a Christ who's all about American politics. You need a Christ who is uh, a therapist for your emotional fragility or a Christ whose mission is to make you healthy and wealthy in this life. These are things people teach in the church. We need to be aware of the danger and aware of the temptation that is held out to us to believe in any other Christ than the Christ who presents himself to us in the Word of God as the only Savior for sinners. And brothers and sisters, pay attention to the fact that Jesus says many will be deceived. Many will be deceived. In that case, what should we do? To avoid being deceived and following some other Christ. Two things. One, you need to know the real Christ. You need to know the doctrine about Christ. 
You need to know who He is. You need to keep a firm grasp on, 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 his, uh, on, on who He is. And so know the Creed, the Nicene Creed. Keep that in your heart. Keep your bookmark in Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 8 of Christ the Mediator, where it lays out so clearly one divine person, two distinct natures, God and man together. Study the real thing, right? You, this is how we always say you, you, you know how to tell a counterfeit bill. You don't look at all the counterfeits. You, you look at the real thing and you study it so closely and so carefully that when the counterfeit comes, you recognize it. Do that with the doctrine of Christ. Know the truth about who He is, how He presents Himself in the Word of God and what the church has confessed about Him. So that when a rival comes along, you won't be deceived. The second thing, however, is not just to know the doctrine, but to know His voice. To recognize His voice. And to know Him personally. Uh, Jesus says in John 10, 4-5, He says, The sheep follow Him, because they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. So in order to avoid being deceived, we need to know the voice of Christ, to recognize his voice as he speaks to us in the Scriptures. Not just knowing the doctrine about him, but but knowing him himself. And that means sitting under his word. That means abiding in His Word. That means reading it and studying it and praying it back to Him so that you know who Christ is, what He is like. Brothers and sisters, if you know Him and you recognize His voice, you will not be led astray by any other Christ. No one is deceived when they are abiding in Christ and His Word and listening to His voice. You're deceived when you stop doing those things. You've probably seen it. I've seen it. People at one point professing faith in Christ, but then they stop abiding in His Word. They don't know His voice anymore. And another gospel, another false Christ comes along and tempts them away. Brothers and sisters, abide in the Word of Christ and know His voice that you may not be deceived. Second thing Jesus says, do not be deceived. Second thing He says, do not be troubled. Do not be troubled. Verses 6 through 8. The word translated troubled here could also be translated as alarmed or disturbed, riled up, worked up, uh, anxious, dreading something. Jesus warns his disciples that they're going to be in circumstances where they will um, be tempted to panic and get worked up and get riled up. Uh, He mentions wars, rumors of wars in verse 6. He mentions nations fighting each other, kingdoms fighting each other. He mentions famines, earthquakes, all these things, right? Those are the sorts of things that make you anxious. The decades that we're about to follow between Christ's death and resurrection and then following that before the destruction of the temple fit the bill for what he's talking about to his disciples. There were lots of wars and rumors of wars. Um, there, there was earthquake and there was famine and there was need. And, and since that time, it hasn't stopped, has it? You can read through the history and you can see generation after generation, century after century, it's the same thing. Wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes, famine, 
All these things continue to go on. Just when people thought we were done with all that because we're modern now, World War I breaks out. The war to end all wars. And it's just the warm-up act for the next World War, World War II. And then it goes on and on. Turn on the news today, it's the same story, isn't it? Wars. Rumors of wars. Famine. Earthquake. Talk of climate change. Immigration crises. Inflation. Recession. Drought. The world can feel like a roller coaster ride that is going off the tracks. Um, so nothing would be more natural, more normal for us than to panic, to get worked up, and, and to be anxious, and to be troubled, and have the alarm in our hearts start going off. But Jesus says, don't be troubled. And he gives us some reasons why. Three, three, three parts to the reason why we're not to be troubled. Verse 6, he says, See that you are not troubled because... Reason number one, all these things must come to pass. Do not be troubled about the instability and the chaos and the, the, all the, the, the conflict around you because it must happen. It is necessary that it happen. Jesus is, is pointing us to the sovereignty of God. He's pointing us to the divine necessity that is behind all these things. It looks like chaos. It looks like, it looks like it's all out of control, but he's saying it's all under the control of God. The wise, just, holy, mighty God who is superintending all of it for His glory and for the good of His people. He has control over every square inch of space and every millisecond of time. Jesus wants us to, to understand this then and not to panic when pandemics happen, wars happen, these things happen, not to be anxious about anything but to be at peace because we know God is in absolute control over all of it. John Piper, in a little book he has on God's sovereignty over evil, writes this. He says, When you are tempted to forsake God because of the greatness of evil and misery in the world, remember that the Bible has prepared us for this temptation. It's a very good point. When you're tempted to think it's out of control, Jesus said you would be tempted to feel that way. And he said, don't give in to the anxious heart because God is sovereign over all things. Second reason Jesus tells us not to be alarmed is also in verse 6. He says, he says, See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass. And here it is. But the end is not yet. What's he saying? He's saying it's going to be a long race. It's not a 100-meter dash. It's an ultra-marathon. Um, so, don't get all worked up in the first mile. You've got a lot of miles to go. Settle in. Get your stride. Keep going. You need to endure. And then the third part of the reason he says not to be troubled, verse 8 here. He says, all these, all these things he's talking about, all these are the beginnings of sorrows. The Greek word for sorrows there means birth pains, the pains of labor and childbirth. Jesus is not just using that word to be a nice, a vivid description of pain uh, and, and, and suffering. He's using it because the providence of God that is underneath all these things is bringing something new to pass through these things. 
These aren't just random, chaotic events. These are suffering that's leading to glory. New creation is coming. Romans 8.22 tells us, the whole creation is groaning together in the pains of childbirth until, until the new creation comes. And that's what Christ is describing here. He's, he's, he's calling us to understand that, that all the difficult conflict around us that tempts our hearts to anxiety is actually God at work bringing about the new creation. It's the birth pains of the kingdom of heaven. And so take heart. Don't be anxious. Just, just like a, a woman in labor who knows she's going to get through it and beyond it is a new child. Take heart and don't be anxious knowing that God is bringing a new creation. So don't be deceived. Don't be troubled. Third thing Jesus commands us here, do not give up. Do not give up. Verses 9 through 14. Uh, In October 1941, two years after World War II had begun, five months after the... Uh, the uh, London Blitz had, had, had been happening. Winston Churchill gave a famous speech at a school that he had attended, and some of his words have become unforgettable from this speech. He says this, For everyone, surely, what we've gone through in this period, surely this is the lesson. Never give in. Never give in. Never, 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 never. And Nothing. Great or small, large or petty, never give in, except to convictions of honor and good sense. Never yield to force. Never yield to the apparently overwhelming might of the enemy. Good advice. Calling for endurance, calling for stern, tough persistence and grit in the face of evil and difficulty and suffering. It's what Jesus is calling us to. In the third command, he gives not to give up. This is the culmination of everything he's been saying here so far. He says in verse 13, the one who endures to the end will be saved. Bear up under the suffering. That's what endurance is, right? It's to to go through something hard and to keep on going through it and to keep on pressing on and not to be beaten down by it. Uh, We often talk about Weakness and humility in the Christian life. And those things are absolutely essential, aren't they? We've seen Christ call so much for humility and poor, being poor in spirit and being, being brokenhearted before God. At the same time, with all those things, we also need to be persevering, gritty and tough in the faith. Have a, have a spiritual stubbornness about us. This is the second time Christ has actually given us this command. Back in chapter 10, 22 of Matthew, uh, Jesus said the same thing to his disciples. The one who endures to the end will be saved. You don't survive the Christian life without endurance. You've got to have endurance, toughness in the, in the Christian life. First of all, Jesus says you'll need endurance, verse 9, because of what you will suffer for his sake. He says they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And it came true, didn't it? All of his disciples, except Judas who fell away. But the rest of them all faced persecution for their testimony to Christ. According to tradition, all but one was martyred for Christ. 
crucified, beheaded, stoned, burned. And John, the one who was not martyred, died as an exile, uh, died in exile. Um, So Jesus is telling them, you're going to need to endure and press on under hardship. And we see this as the story of so much of church history. It's a wonderful account of Latimer and Ridley, reformers in, in England in the 16th century. It actually happened on October 16th, right? Today is the 15th, tomorrow is the 16th anniversary of this. Uh, in 1555, they're holding on to the true gospel and they're burned at the stake for it. And Latimer says to, 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 to Ridley beside him as they're about to be burned, play the man, Master Ridley. Endure to the end. Just this past August in India, eastern India, hundreds of churches burned, hundreds of Christians killed for faithfulness to Christ. We're not facing that kind of persecution. And we give thanks to that. We should give thanks to God for the freedom that we enjoy in this country. And... um, it's, 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 uh, it's a blessing for us, but we also need to be ready for changing times and ready to be faithful under cultural, social rejection, losing social respectability. Uh, and this is just increasing. And, and the consequences for being faithful to Christ and faithful to the Word of God are only going to increase, brothers and sisters. Our Lord Jesus Himself says to us, you've got to be ready to endure hardship and persecution for the Gospel. Second thing, the second reason you'll need endurance, Jesus says, many will be offended. Verse 10, many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. So verse 9, he's talking about outside pressures, the persecution of the world against the church. Now he's talking about inside pressures, inside the, body, the, the visible body of Christ, the visible church. Many will be offended and betray one another, hate one another. You'll be betrayed by people you thought you could trust. People that you thought loved you will turn out to have hated you. We see this in the Apostle Paul's life. At the end of his life, he tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 4 uh, that Demas has deserted me and gone away to Thessalonica in love with this present world. Paul was betrayed, forgotten. Um, we see it throughout church history. This happens that people in the actual Church of Christ claiming to be Christians persecute those who are Christians in their midst. J. Gresson Machen, being faithful to the gospel of Christ, kicked out of the Presbyterian church in the 1930s for it. So we need to be ready. We need endurance, Jesus says, to keep going even as friends fail and people you thought were friends turn against you. You need to endure. Also, he says, verse 11, you'll need endurance because false teaching is going to increase. You'll need theological stamina and and endurance to to hang on to the true gospel. It happens in every generation. New heresies, well, old heresies with new clothes uh, come and and parade uh, as something new, as something better. Jesus is saying you're going to need to fight for the truth, hold fast to the truth, and keep the faith. And then fourth, verse 12, you'll need endurance because, he says, lawlessness will abound And the love of many will grow cold. You'll be swimming against the tide. Um, Lawlessness is the open flaunting and celebration of, of, of the breaking of God's law. Saying, I will not be bound by the law of God. I'm going to I'm going to to flaunt my disobedience to it. That's what lawlessness is. And 
That's what surrounded the pagan culture of the early church, and that's what surrounds us in our culture increasingly. And the result, Jesus says, is that love grows cold. Remember, Jesus says love is the fulfilling of the law. Love God, love neighbor is the sum of the law. So as lawlessness increases, love cools. And so we need to be keeping our heart, keeping our love, love for God. And, and, and the more the temperature drops outside, the more work you have to do to keep the fire hot inside. The more the, lo- the lawlessness outside of you puts pressure on you, the more you have to fan the flame of devotion in your heart to God by His Word, through prayer, through the means of grace. Jesus is calling us to endurance and stubbornness in loving Him and loving our neighbor as ourselves. And Jesus actually says in verse 13 that this endurance is necessary to be saved. That you won't be saved without enduring. That you won't be saved if you give up and fail. That if you drop out of the race, you don't get to cross the finish line. So don't quit in the Christian life. Never give up. Never, never, never give up. Endure. And then the question is, well, how? Because if I were to go through the things Jesus lists out there, I don't think I would endure. Um, I'm not that tough. I'm not that stubborn. I'm, I'm stubborn about the wrong things, but I'm not stubborn about the right things. As soon as things get challenging in the Christian life, it's so easy to drift. It's so easy to start slipping. It's so easy to let your heart's love for God just start cooling and not care about it. Things can not even be a great tribulation, and we start acting that way. We slip so easily. So how can we endure? How can such uh, weak-kneed people like us have courage to stand strong and endure these things for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ? Verse 14, Jesus says, He's just called for endurance in verse 13. Verse 14, This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations. And then the end will come. What does he say? One thing, at least, that he's saying is that the gospel will be preached. Not the gospel must be preached. He calls him to preach the gospel, be faithful, endure. But then he says the gospel will be preached. He is saying that he himself is going to give this kingdom success. And read this in just a few chapters, Matthew 28. What does he say to his disciples? Go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. All authority in heaven and earth given to me. I think he's saying something very similar here, that it's by Christ's power that his kingdom will come. And it's, it's by Christ's power that his disciples will remain faithful and, and will endure because of his authority and, and his promise that he himself will be with us. As Jesus calls us to endurance in the face of all these things, he's not calling us to self-reliance and willpower. He's calling us to dependence on him. He endured. 
All that all that's described there, he endured all of it more than any Christian ever will. The tribulation and the suffering and the and, and, and the betrayal. And 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 he did it, brothers and sisters, not for just his own sake. But he did it for our sakes. We we, we can't endure. Oh, without his grace, we'd collapse in an instant for the least trial and difficulty. But but Christ came and he endured for us. He endured so that we might look to him in helpless faith. And God counts us as righteous, enduring Christians in him. God counts Christ's endurance to you when you look to him by faith. And Christ not only has done this, but he's also filled us with his spirit. The same spirit that was with Christ as he suffered and labored and submitted to the will of God and endured all these things and remained steadfast. The same spirit has been given to us. Hebrews 12 calls us to this, to look to Christ in these things, brothers and sisters. Wonderful words. Hebrews 12, 1 through 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race set before us. How? Looking to Jesus, the pioneer and finisher of our faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He pioneered our faith. He's going to finish our faith. He's already won the race, and he's calling us home to himself. He's given the Spirit to us so that we can endure in the same way that he endured. And so, endure, persevere. Don't be deceived. Don't be troubled. Don't give up. Why? Christ for you did it. Christ in you will do it. Let's pray. Our gracious God, thank you for our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, and for his endurance and joy. And we pray that we would walk by faith in him, that you would strengthen us in him for endurance and patience and long-suffering with joy for the sake of our Savior. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.